Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and my co-host persists when working toward his goals. And I'm Michael Ralph, and my co-host is consistently socially and culturally aware. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Monday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today we are drinking Shake Chocolate Porter from the Colorado Boulder Beer Company. I have a confession, Mr. Ralph. Go on. I am very familiar with this beer. I have two grading places. One's a coffee shop and one's a bar. And uh, I always like to try the, the uh, you know, revolving uh, darker taps. But this beer is the default stout that I have when none of the revolvers are interesting to me. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. Well, uh, I've never had this one. And as I told you before the show, I had a heck of a time finding a beer that wasn't coffee infused. I feel like we've drank a lot of coffee, uh, coffee flavored beers. So I just picked it because it wasn't a coffee and it was something that was a little heavier. And so um, I'm excited to try it. There are three of us on the episode this month. We are joined by guest host Will Dunn, who is a high school math teacher at Baser Linwood, is a board member for KATM, and a co-founder of Jayhawk Math Teacher Circle. He is constantly searching for the next aha for students by fostering curiosity, ideally in ways that are not immediately visible. Welcome, Will. Hey, hello, guys. Good to be here. We talked about having you come on and talk because we had a handful of uh, like social media interactions. Well, I don't know. There was, there was a few things. I think the most recent interaction we had stemmed from a conversation I have with a handful of teachers who are interested in going gradeless or who have gone gradeless. And, and one of those gentlemen pushes this notion that your learning objectives or your learning targets should not be content specific, but rather 21st century skill specific. And, and my question then more broadly to, the, to, to anyone, yourself included, was can you get content development if you strictly focus on 21st century skills as your primary assessed item? There is a whole discussion to be had about what that looks like for students. What should the students be doing and experiencing? So that's what we're going to talk about this, uh, this afternoon. Reading these papers that uh, you slated for this week kind of made me feel like I was revisiting my, revisiting my teacher education program because one of them is uh, really, uh, really, it's a philosophy piece. And the other is uh, sort of the mechanics of scaffolding from concrete to abstract. So uh, we'll talk about that uh, philosophy piece first. Uh, the title was, Can Character Solve Our Problems? Character Qualities and the Imagination Age from Alvarez in 2018, published in Creative Education. Uh, and so I want to give a note just right here at the beginning. Creative Education is a journal published by Scientific Research Publishing, and they've had a handful of incidents, uh, an accumulating number of incidents over the past 10 years involving um, subpar or predatory practices. And so um, I entered into this with a little bit of concern, but I wanted to read the paper uh, to sort of make, uh, make some of our own conclusions. But we need to know for you listeners, uh, this was published by a company that has some red flags in their practices. Um, so, uh, Will, what did you think of the paper? Well, I have to say, when when the sentence title is "Can blank solve our problems," I I immediately get a little skeptical. That's such a that was an alarm bell, and I don't know if that if that 
shaded the rest of my interpretation of this. I thought it had some really neat thoughts and some neat ideas, but uh, at, the, at the very least, I'll say I don't think it captures enough or all of what we're trying to do here uh, in the information age. Yeah, so the, the conceit of the paper was that there should be a shift from content uh, to skills, or the this author calls them meta competencies, because they're they're even um, a higher level or more abstract than individual specific practices as we usually conceive of them here. And uh, the the author identified this paper as a debate paper, so they were making a specific argument from specific premises for an action. That action was to shift instruction towards these meta competencies. And so they attempted to defend that position. My view of the paper is actually, I, I agree with the conclusions and hate all the arguments. That's actually where I am. It's like those competencies I'm generally a fan of and have no problem conceptually using my classroom time to promote them in my students. Those competencies uh, that they say we should be using class time to, uh, to encourage is curiosity, initiative, persistence, adaptability, leadership, and social and cultural awareness. And I am behind all of those. Yeah, so I'm curious to know, Will, because you've done a lot of reading and a lot of thinking on this topic, uh, how does that definition, or how do those identified metacompetencies, how does that jive with the other stuff you've been thinking about, the other stuff you've read related to um, competency growth or skill growth for students? Um, well, I mean, they, they mesh. That list meshes nicely with you know, a lot of the things that I have, I mean, I, I agree with Lawrence here. I, I think it's okay to say we should try to cultivate curiosity in our students. If you look at my bio, I, I think I even mentioned something along those lines, you know, initiative and, and leadership. Who's going to argue against these? Um, but, but my question was, if I'm a content specialist, if my field is math, am I, uh, the question I ask of myself is, is ultimately, is my job to teach, help these students learn math? Or is it to help them learn these specific skills? And if we get some math in there, great. Um, ultimately, I fall on the side of I'm a math teacher, and my job is to make sure these kids can reason mathematically. If I can do that in conjunction with this, then I'm great. But I'm this. This might be a chicken or the egg situation. I'm not sure which one perpetuates the other. Where's the thrust here? Well, what I think is interesting. That it's not an either or choice. And I think I, I really, I repeat that often in this sort of a conversation, even in the graphic that the author cites in the paper, they're, they're emphasizing the character qualities over on one side of the graphic, but on the left are specific uh, content competencies that are called for in the same graphic. And numeracy is one of them. I mean, understanding and reasoning quantitatively is a part of those expectations. And so I don't, I don't know that we have to choose necessarily the author is happy to say that here are these three tiers of understanding or three tiers of the learner, and we think we should really hit the first, the third one out of the park. But you can't do that without the other two anyway. So, so which is it here? Um, and I don't know if you can teach them separately or or always separately. I really do think there's quite a confluence here. I think the confluence concept is really where we need to to live. As in, I as a science teacher want to develop initiative and curiosity and persistence with my students and i need to find how to use science to do that uh yeah and so i would propose that as a math teacher adaptability and leadership and persistence we want those for our students how can i use math to do that or how can i use english to do that or how can i use french to do that 
I, I was going to transition a little bit because I hated this paper for so many different reasons. And so the broad hand waving, the, you know, we talked about perspective only a few months ago and they are, the author is sold out for that economic perspective yeah. on education. I mean, with both feet and the materials from the World Economic Forum didn't look terrible to me. And what I was, what I was skimming through in the references, they're not necessarily too bad, but then some of the critiques of, well, that column is the third. And so it is less, it's less important. Well, one of the columns has to be third. So give me a break. Like there's a lot of hand waving and sweeping comments, uh, not to mention a lot of just typos and grammatical errors that suggest it hasn't seen a lot of review and their references section. There are 42 references. 12 of them come from within the last five years. And this is a, this is a bleeding edge talking about the future article. And yet only 12 of 42 of the citations are from the last five years. Only th three of them, three of them are texts, which I'm, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt are probably peer reviewed. And only one of them is a journal article and it is not an education article. There are literally zero recent peer reviewed journal education articles cited in this paper, zero. Now you can go back a hundred years and get some really good education philosophy citations. You can go back to the nineties and read uh, Neil Postman who suggests that there are much bigger, better reasons for public education than economic model uh, and, you know, uh, fighting the industrial model. But I think the conclusion of the argument is worth exploring all the same. And so back to your original question of what does it mean to shift from, uh, like right now in Kansas, your Common Core and my, uh, my NGSS frameworks uh, are built around content knowledge, they're organized around content knowledge. Now the NGSS has embedded practices in those performance expectations, but I, I still would agree with the premise that they are content with practices interwoven. What does it look like to shift to have it be practices with content interwoven? I think that's worth exploring. I think it's worth considering. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I Sometimes I'm very attracted to this idea where it's um, it's these qualities first and the content kind of woven in. Um, but at the same time, I happen to really like math and I really, really like helping other people like math. Um, and I think there's benefit. I think it it's it's only beneficial to develop one's mathematical reasoning. This kind of goes back a little bit to, to something that was stated earlier. I forget exactly what the, the wording was, but you'll notice when I introduced myself at the beginning, I said, I like to help students with their mathematical reasoning. That's because reasoning is this ability to use other math knowledge, but in a, in a sensible kind of cohesive way with an end goal in mind. What am I trying to do? How am I going to get there? What do I know now that helps me get there? What do I wish I knew? Um, and I think that's that overlap between this imagination age and math content that this author is speaking of. Um, but that can actually happen in a content specific field in the classroom. You said imagination age, and that was actually something that I liked hearing about. I like that idea. There was actually two ideas that, that I got from this that were new to me that I really appreciated. The imagination age, like we should promote ourselves not just to get information, but ask ourselves, what can we do with this? Uh, because that that's... That's great. That's that's a great question. We know more things. What can we do with this knowledge? I think is a wonderful 
question, a wonderful place for a society to be. That curiosity and that initiative, we know things, let's do stuff about it. I, I think that's a wonderful concept and it's kind of a, a society I would like to go to. And another term that I had never heard of and had to do some research to understand better was the term for wicked problems. I love that term. Uh, and so at first, when I first read it, I assumed that they were making a very strong moral statement. And I was like, wow, this is a different kind of paper than I usually read for this show. But then, uh, you know, you do a little more deeper reading and then you go look some stuff up and you find out that a wicked problem specifically has these characteristics of being volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And that's great. That's great, because, you know, when you're problem solving, you're like, okay, first, let's discover the boundaries of the problem. Oh, this problem has really ill-defined, if any, boundaries. So that makes it hard to solve. And, you, you know, what do we know? Not much. So that makes it hard to solve. And so you go through this checklist, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. What are given? Well, things are changing, so nothing is given. You know, I just love that this is a wicked problem. I want to be able to use that effectively in my daily life. So I will say thanks for introducing this new concept to my vocabulary. I do appreciate that. Make better mistakes. So our second segment is actually a follow-up to a last month's piece of discussion. And so we're gonna expand on that topic now. Uh, here was what we got said last month. Yeah, especially, I'm thinking actually in my college biology class, when I'm, instead of just describing these molecular interactions and showing them pictures of these molecular interactions, recreating some of these mm -hmm. molecular interactions, like I know, I, I mean, I can't, uh, there are things that I can't do, which is the complexity of molecular science. Uh, but there are things that I can illustrate physically, and they will re some of them will remember watching me do things. Uh, yeah, embodied cognition yeah. is the uh, is the term for the thing that you were describing, and that was actually that was the focus of the hypothetical research that I had to design for my pre the class that I just finished this semester, and so I don't know all about it, but you know I'm, about it. I know something about it. Uh, so there's a pretty decent chance that'll be on our reading list next month. So ever since we had that exchange last month, I wanted to find a way to have a new paper that we could all read together and talk about uh, this embodied cognition this month. So we have read, Reading Comprehension is Embodied, Theoretical and Practical Considerations, and that's by Sadowski, published in Educational Psychology Review. Uh, so Will, uh, I don't know how I don't know how much you knew about embodied cognition before before uh, your reading in preparation for the show. Uh, just what did you think when you first saw that as a title as you were popping open? Had you heard of that before? No, that you know that one's not. So two things: one, this was a lot of new stuff for me, which was very enjoyable to get into, and two, um, I realized until about this morning that I'd read the wrong one. I read one that was titled "How Reading Comprehension Is Embodied." so on and so forth. And then I realized this one's called reading comprehension is a body. So I actually just read it the one time this morning, but it was, it was very interesting. Um, the, you know, the first place I went was learning styles. Um, you know, I'm a listener, I'm a hands-on, I'm a, you know, I need to move, um, you know, and I'm not big on the whole learning styles business, but, um, but this one says, you know, your that, that kind of sensory motor aspect to it really is, important. Um, and I, and I believe that, um, 
I just don't think it fits into that other framework of there's a different type of learner for each person. Uh, yeah, and it's really it's you're right. It's not because learning styles we've 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 gotten into that on this show a little bit. That's not that's not what we're talking about here. But really about the nature and the underlying processes of cognition. It's really fascinating. They gave an example that I kept going to over and over again as I got deeper and deeper in the paper to explain, okay, what, how, what is relevant about that example here? What is relevant about that example here? So I'd like to start with that example. And they start with the example of counting on your fingers. It is often um, practiced for very young children to physically, with very strong gestures, uncurl their fingers and and do this sort of motion with their arms so that there's an emphasis when their fingers are uncurled when they're counting to 10. One index finger, two middle finger, three. And our concept of counting is this thinking. All thinking is done as our brain, but that motion is done in our brain too. So this concept of a number and this motion are associated with each other together. It's all one experience. And then we practice it and we get really good at it. And our brain is firing these synapses. And it turns out that we can, we can get faster at it. And we don't have to shake our entire arm and uncurl our whole finger. We can just put our fingers on the desk and kind of press into the desk. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It's still a physical activity, but it's much less mooted. Or we can put our fingers under, under our under our desk and just kind of tap our knee one two three four five six seven eight nine ten we're still counting but it's still physical and we can even imagine our hands moving and not actually moving one two three four five six seven eight nine ten and then it can get to the point where we are counting but we're not actually moving our body but our brain has still incorporated that motion into the concept of counting so it's like we're counting on our fingers in our heart one two three four five six seven eight nine ten and so we can get further and further away from the physical experience, but that physical experience has been networked into the process of this concept through a concrete physical experience with the world. And so now counting has been embodied whether I move my body or not. I think the value of what they're saying is that when you start looking at these nested schema, like what does this idea mean and what is it based on and what is it based on and what is it based on and you go all the way down, you're going to get to some concrete experience. I think that's the heart of what this paper is telling us, that as complex and as far away from the human experience you get, you are never going to leave it. And if you forget that thread, you're not going to be able to teach and you're not going to be able to learn. Well, I mean, I, I do gesticulate a lot when I teach. So a couple of things that are running through my head here is I, my goal is to speak to the students. I don't want to be explaining all, any more than I have to. So I mean, I'm not surprised that gesticulation conveys message maybe unique to gesticulation. Um, communication it, itself is just more than sound waves. Um, we've known this for a long time. And so I, it's it's not surprising to me that this this also incur, you know occurs in instruction. So I, I wonder about the student gesticulation as learners, not just the teacher's gesticulation as an instructor. If there's benefit in that, uh, another thought was when I'm dealing with you know algebra, which is where we start in the high school world typically. That is the abstraction of the more numerical 
counting skills of elementary. Um, we are just talking about it more broadly and more generally. And for whatever reason, that bridge is very interesting for students. But if I say count to 10 and I use my fingers and I still let my students do that because those students, it tells me, still need to have that type of construction, that concreteness to it. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that. How do I speak about these more abstract things with that concreteness? I mean, things that are definitionally abstract. And so I think, I think what's at the heart of this, uh, this theory of um, embodied cognition is about all the different ways that information is encoded and all the different ways that it can thus be retrieved. And so I think that it even goes to uh, having rich and dynamic mechanisms for communication about abstract ideas gives you greater bandwidth to understand those ideas. So if I'm talking about even something highly abstract, like, you know, six and seven dimensional math, that, that fundamentally does not exist in our experience of reality. But if I could be having that conversation and I have a whiteboard at hand and so I could draw if I need to, and then I have some, some clay so I can like get out, I can make a couple represent just as I'm talking to you. And all the while that that's happening there, I don't know, of making sounds. And what I'm getting to is being able, all the different ways that I can, even as I'm talking to you in this moment, I'm waving my hands wildly. And so having a classroom culture where all those different mechanisms of communication exist because they communicate unique information that doesn't necessarily overlap with discussion that necessarily gives our students more access to abstract ideas. So it's not necessarily about anchoring abstract ideas in concrete experiences, although that is a piece of what this theory talks about. But I think for classroom instructors, it's really about recognizing all of the different ways that we can communicate information, that students can communicate information with each other. And so then opening up all those opportunities so they can have richer dialogue so they can have deeper understanding. Now, we've taken these ideas and we've talked about them in these different contexts, but the paper's context was reading comprehension. And so in, in terms of reading comprehension, what the paper was saying is that if a student is reading something, what they're doing in their mind are creating simulations. And those simulations are attempts to reconstruct sensory experiences in a meaningful way. The example they used when discussing this was eating an ice cream cone. There's the smell of the sugar cone. There's the smell of the ice cream that can be involved in the simulation. There is the holding of the cone and the texture in your palm that is part of the, the uh, simulation. There's the taste of the ice cream that is part of the simulation. So there's this sensory simulation that is happening when you are reading about someone else eating an ice cream cone. And the complexity about reading comprehension is that if you have students read something that they have no world experience about, then they cannot create the simulation needed to understand the reading. And as we get to more complex topics and these, these, um, these simulations have to be nested in other metaphors and other abstractions. And there's multi layers of, of going from just holding the ice cream cone in your hand to having a, a, an understanding of scarcity and abundance in an economic classroom. That ice cream is still relevant to understanding scarcity and abundance in an economic classroom. But if they don't have these concrete experiences, you can't build up to those abstractions and they're not going to be able to create the simulations they need to understand those abstractions. Yeah, he identified um, 
metaphors, which I highlighted because I thought that was a super important recommendation um, for the importance of context and how metaphors plays into that. That's funny. That makes me think of um, there was an activity that my predecessor at Olathe East um, did in her uh, AP bio course with, um, with membranes that I didn't do because I'm a big old stick in the mud. And she was correct for doing it. Wiggle like a lipid is literally giving them another mechanism to embody the behavior of that macromolecule. Yeah. And the fact that I was uncomfortable doing that made my classroom a poorer experience. Like wiggle, like if, if, if wiggling is a part of understanding, give them access to wiggle. Yeah. And I, I, you say that, and I have made a, I made it a point to make a fool out of myself in front of my students every single time to, to do that literal wiggle dance. Like, okay, so I'm wiggling crazily because I, I'm a sub, I'm a particle, and this is how I do. So what's going to happen to me? You know, like, yeah. uh, so I did the, the, the showing it to them, but that's that I uh, allows. Uh, younger, well, and we read last week that students that watch it happen are more effective when they're younger, but having them do it themselves is more effective when they're older. So I'm teaching molecular biology. I got to make those kids shake. You know, I will say when we study relationships, which is, you know, algebra being the, the general, the general sense of what happens when there are things that can change, when there are variables involved, um, we get into the graphing a lot. We, we do often, I try to do this thing where they're on a it's difficult on um, bleachers because they're at an angle, but you try and have students move on the bleachers up or down, whether it's a linear relationship or if they get to go over one and up two bleachers and then over one and up four bleachers so they can kind of see the pace of what's happening. Um, that's the closest I can get off the top of my, my head right now. But we don't, you know, here I said all this about how math is so abstract at the high school level, but being an algebra one world, it's not like, crazy abstract um and you really can't we get to make it concrete on paper and physically when we can so like even 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 in abstract math topics i think if you go sufficiently um deep into the schema of uh, a distinguished mathematics professor at ku who's deeply published in highly abstract math concepts if you go deep enough into their schema it will still hold embodied characteristics at the atomic level of their schema i accept that argument i think that that's true and so i think recognizing opportunities to leverage that yeah. is really our calling as instructors it's not it's not that it is or it isn't it is full stop so where can we leverage that is actually the question. Uh, I think of, you know, seeing, seeing water flowing out of a bucket. And so how that rate changes over time gives them another concrete experience to uh, further diversify their schema related to uh, nonlinear functions, to curvilinear functions. And that can be useful if I have some way to leverage that. But whether or not I do that, their understanding of curvilinear functions is embodied. It's just whether or not I know how it is embodied and whether or not I'm leveraging that for X or Y for whatever reason. Like they're not, it's not a dichotomy. Concepts are not abstract or, or concrete. There is this um, spectrum of, of abstract, of concrete to abstract. And we can nest metaphors to get further and further away from the concrete uh, seed, but there's still a connection between the concrete seed and the abstraction. So it's not, 
It's not, it is abstract or it is concrete. It is how abstract is it? How far away from that seed physical sensory experience is this idea? Uh, something that I think is interesting about this, uh, this paper's argument that they don't really discuss is they, they really seem to be planting their feet. Everything is embodied. Everything is down to concrete experiences. But I think when you overlap that, with the brain's ongoing ten, ongoing um, remodeling and rewriting of memories, I think that it's more complex than that. Like one, what is one? Like, well, we have many, yeah, we have many concrete experiences with oneness. I'm having those conversations with my daughters now. Like Cameron and I are on the cutting edge of oneness right now. We're breathing down the neck of two. It's gonna be amazing. But as she gets older, and we have so many experiences with oneness and we rewrite those memories over and over again, what would it look like in that thought experiment if we could drill down in her schema to see what the nature of uh, the individual nodes in her schema are that contribute to oneness? What do those look like? I think they look a lot different than actual episodic memories because of all the different overlap of her different sensory experiences and the constant rewriting as she thinks about oneness in many different contexts, do I think they're linked to specific um, neurons in her somatosensory cortex and in her visual cortex? Yes, I, I accept that. But I think that the, the, the highly remodeled nature of those atomic nodes in her schema makes them so much different from your specific episodic memories that the distinction is arbitrary. Like it's not a modal, of course it's not, but it is so much different than what a fresh visual memory is or what a fresh somatosensory memory is that it might as well be a modal. Like it's so different that it's why not? Like, yeah, like it's sufficiently chaotic. Why not call it random? Like it's, it's close enough. So I think those highly, those, those foundational notes, um, regions in our schema that get accessed and remodeled over a lifetime, they become so synthetic that are they embodied? Sure. But are they sufficiently different from our more proximal memories that they're something else entirely? Yes. I think I would make that argument. And I, and I think, you know, as a math teacher, that's almost, I'm going to have to accept that almost to do my job because I mean, I get these kids, at 13, 14, 15, with a lot of experiences from other people or missing experiences. So so I have to fit myself into the more proximal, or I have to start creating these more proximal. I don't get to go back with them as, as a three-year-old and start talking about oneness. I mean, I don't know how old your kids are, but start talking about onenesses to them and how they're experiencing this as they build this. Um, that was something I was going to say earlier, and I think I lost track of. You know, I we get who we get in the classroom, but that does, but they're still able to learn. They're still teachable people, so we kind of have to figure out where in their nested metaphors we live and how we start creating these new things for them. Yeah, that's the key of responsive teaching. You've got to identify where in their nested metaphors we can live. You know, when I'm in my classroom, like I said, I, what I really try to do is set something up, some sort of question um, or just an image, and I just say, what's on your mind because of this image? Or, 
you know, if it's if, even if it's more targeted, I'd like you to try and achieve some end. I really don't care how you get there. Be reasonable. Let's just get there. And the whole point is not about how any one student gets there or how any one student group, because I tend to have them working collaboratively. Um, it's about the conversation we're going to have lacing one student's approach to the next student's approach to the next student's approach, because I really feel like in, in a math classroom, a lot of the conception, the understanding, the comprehension comes from how you interweave multiple approaches and multiple reasonings together. And so here I don't have to zone in on any one particular student's, you know, in a chain of 15 and, you know, met, embedded metaphors, nested metaphors that they should have by now for this idea. Um, you know, they're at 11 or 12. And I know that's, this is kind of a, a, a poor analogy here, but if they're embracing it on their own and then we thread them together, we can kind of force them into the same region, even if we start in a really broad region of understanding. If you can get out of their way and you can have them do it on their own terms as much as possible, they know where they're in their process of understanding. We're simply trying to make that an accessible point for them um, for whatever our end is. And then we'll thread them all together through discussion and a little bit of showing. And, uh, and then we can kind of realign them a little bit. And now for something completely different. This might be a, a, a bit of a stretch here, but let me just ask then what you think about common assessments for grades. And I know grades and assessments are kind of a separate category here, but let's do it. And there's a reason I'm asking this, but so, so what are your thoughts in general on common assessment between classes and teachers and what happens in their classrooms versus your own classroom? Okay. Well, so one, one thing I was a separate piece of research I was reading because I'm heavily into the assessment side of things right now. And, you know, Actually, I've got it is here. It's actually from uh, Bruce Frey at KU. Okay, so teachers' classroom assessment practices is the sure. is the is the article, and that's from Middle Grades Research Journal. He he talks a lot. He and his co-author Vicky Schmidt talk a lot of in uh, the types, the modalities of assessment that teachers do. They do kind of a general survey of a lot of teachers. What are the types of assessment techniques you use? And then they start making some claims at the end of effectiveness of various types and best practices, so to speak, and. Um, you know, a, a part of that was teachers need to be doing a lot of their assessment generation on their own because of what happens in their classrooms. So it's okay for me to have this experience and this conversation with my kids based on where they were. And when I do this, they know that means towers falling and they can relate that back to their experience and they can impress that onto this new understanding we're trying to develop. Um, if another Classroom doesn't have that, um, and and we're doing things, you know, and I we have some reference to something like that. It's really meaningful for my kids, and it's okay for me to speak in those terms of the shared experience that we had. It still exposes the understanding. Other classrooms don't have that option. So is something lost in the neutering of the assessment so that it's equally applicable across all classrooms, or should we be doing something a little more tailored to each of our classrooms, or is there middle ground here? Well, just uh... – I'm, I'm not a Buddhist, but uh, the Buddhist in me says, well, there's always a middle way. So, like, since you offered middle ground as an answer, if this were a multiple choice test, A, all common assessments, B, all individual crafted, C, somewhere in the middle, my gut tells me the answer is somewhere in the middle. For, for full points, I'm going to go officially somewhere in the middle. However, as a practitioner, 
I leaned very heavily into ignoring common assessments entirely. Um, I, I give the ones required because I have a job and they tell me to do things, uh, but I don't look at them. I record the outcomes and I don't think about them ever again. And as far as grades are concerned, the only thing that matter in my classroom are the, are the assessments that I craft. And the only thing that I care about is my students improving their performance on the assessments that I craft. So uh, I am, especially based on the research we read last week, mm. uh, not last week, last month, on the statistical inconsistencies in comparing large scale standardized tests, I've become, I mean, the longer I'm teaching, the less I find value in using broader scoped tests to inform classroom decisions. The, the context matters. And again, I'm gonna reference the research that we read last month because a common assessment done poorly does harm. A common assessment done poorly hurts, hurts, and you are better off to have none. Uh, so one common assessment available per course that's crafted by somebody who is trained in designing an instrument and can appropriately respect the shortcomings of those in that instrument to limit conclusions of things that are defensible would be really useful. And you and I have told the story before about how useful uh, even a, even a a common assessment data that we could analyze to search for opportunities for improvement was yeah. useful. External calibration has a role. It, was, it wasn't It was the assessment. It was the collaboration between you and I about what is the results of this assessment mean that was valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so without context, just imagining broadly how I have seen common assessments get used, more often than not, they hurt. Because they are, their limitations are not respected, the items are not constructed with, with meaningful consideration of reliability and validity, and there's no search for bias, and they're implemented with heavy-handed administrative approaches that limit teacher autonomy and creativity and impose penalties for things over which they do not have control. And so all of those things are terrible. And so if I was just picking blind... I would say you should have no common assessments until you can construct a common assessment for which you have justification that you have reasonable ways to use it. When that is true, use it. It's great. Yeah. I, I believe in it. That's why I'm doing the training that I'm doing. My PhD is in essentially educational statistics for exa exactly this reason. When done well, they are useful. But when they are done poorly, they are harmful. And so if you're not sure you're doing them well, don't do them. Yeah. We do this. We have our conversations in class. We, we kind of have these individual embodiments, and then we have kind of our whole class organism discussions, and we have our, we have our own little language that we kind of developed in how we, what we reference and our, you know, how we move ourselves. And, and then you go to something that's, a, I feel like I'm kind of pulling the rug out from underneath them, and also it doesn't feel good to me when I do that. Now, if I've made the understanding, and as you say, the assessment is constructed well, and we can account for all these concern, these concerning elements. Um, I'm I am okay with it, but um, I, I'm such a I'm such a fan, and I'm just in love with the experiences we have on our with our students, kind of on this day to day level about the connections we're making in real time. Um, I, I do get worried about then losing that a little bit with some generic thing at the end, as opposed to then be what we wrap around everything. Um, so that that was why I was asking. The understanding is based on the concrete experiences of the learner and 
despite the fact that none of them have the same concrete experiences, here's a test that we're going to claim is valid for everyone. There is a tension there. It is not off topic. It is a complication of this reality. Well, tension, I mean, I think it's something we can wrap, we can define and then correct against. Um, I wonder how often that's done. Um, And I think that's a problem. And I don't even know if I would trust myself to do it right now without assistance and more learning uh, for myself. And and I think it's fair to say that students who have their embodied cognitions and their their you know their schemas growing in the right way and all of these you know all of these classroom specific learning experiences, um, you can still if they do all of this well, they can still perform well on a test. Well. Something that I want to underline is we all sort of have this education shorthand being educators. And when we say common assessments, we have a specific thing in mind. Like, I, I believe that all three of us are imagining the same kind of common, common assessment. That doesn't have to be what it is. Like that, because without external reference, I had an experience with that a number of years ago, maybe five or six years ago, with the, my AP class, where I finally, I, I went hardcore direction shift and I ignored all the external indicators I'd been using in the classroom because I've been losing student participation. I wanted to welcome more students. So I just torched everything. It was like, we're gonna go only internal assessments. We're gonna help them get better every day. That's all we're about. And we had a great year. We felt really good about the growth that we did. I still feel really good about the work those students did. And we had a rude shock at the AP exam because we did not know the things we believe we knew in the way we believe we knew them. And that was on me. That, that was my fault. And I have written about that. And so having no external indicators does allow for a sense of vertigo of you can kind of lose track of what are the actual things that we're doing and how sure am I that I'm doing them. And I know that because I've done it. And it's, a, yeah. it's, unha- it's an unhappy realization when it happens. And so for that reason, common assessment is useful. Common assessment doesn't have to be some poorly constructed 150 question multiple choice exam. It doesn't have to be that. Let's all sit down and write what you know about photosynthesis. And then I'm going to look at what my students wrote. I'm going to look at what your students wrote. And we're going to see how they are different. And then we're going to see if that matters. That is a common assessment. Does it do what we need it to do? I don't know. What do we want it to do? And that's a, that's a question that you can pose your department. So you can ask, how do we want to compare each other's work? And how can I find ways for improvement? And that can happen in all sorts of ways. The key, I think, about what you just said is that in that open-ended common assessment, write what you know about photosynthesis, and we're going to compare my students to your students, is that you've got a teachers in a dialogue directly about student work. And then it becomes valuable. This is better with all of you. How was the beer? Um, I left very little for, to remind me what it tastes like. In fact, we this is two pint PLC, but I drank three of them today. Uh, I love this uh, chocolate shake, Porter. It is smooth. It is aromatic. You can taste the chocolate, but it doesn't overpower it. It's got a little bit of bitterness, but it, there's also some sweetness to counteract that. It is a great beer. Uh, I I can't argue it is super smooth for several for several episodes now we've drank something that was a little bit harsher 
this one is easy to drink. It's reminiscent in a lot of ways of my favorite 1554 and it's easy to drink nature. Yeah. Uh, I taste the chocolate in there, which is not my preference, but I don't find it disagreeable. I'm, I'm, I like chocolate just fine. And so I understand why you drink this one regularly. And yeah. I'm pleased that I got to check it out. Thank you for joining us, Will Dunn. It was a pleasure having a, a third voice and a representative of the classroom back on the show. It was a lot of fun having you. Uh, if there are listeners who want to consume more from you, they want to engage with you and the way you think about education will be a good place for them to find material you create. Well, I'm going to plug uh, Kansas Association of Teachers of Mathematics, which is the board that I serve on and you referred to earlier. I think that's a great resource if you're a math educator. If you want to talk about math ed or um, anything broader educational, Twitter is the best place. At Will M. Dunn is how you'll find me. Thank you to all of you for listening. This is our last regular episode of season two. We will have our finale next month. So we hope you are excited to tune in and join us as we reflect on a year of professional learning. Remember that you can get all of our links to both the primary papers and a bunch of supporting references on our website, twopintplc.com. As we pursue growth, discuss research, struggle well, and learn like others depend on it.